We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Hey everyone, Chris Webster here. Just a quick note before we start. This is an encore presentation of the Rock Art Podcast with special guest Dr. Tirtha Mukapade. This is one of the show's most downloaded episodes, and we thought some of our new listeners would enjoy hearing it. So check out this episode from the archives and let Dr. Tirtha tell you about his career in rock art that sweeps the globe from India to Texas to Mexico. Enjoy the show. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. You're listening to the Rock Art Podcast with Dr. Alan Garfinkel, a podcast about all things rock art. Send us your suggestions. Hello and welcome to the Rock Art Podcast, episode 14 with Dr. Alan Garfinkel. Today, Dr. Garfinkel talks to Dr. Tirtha Mukhopadhyay about his work with rock art and its connection to science and religion. Hello out there in uh, Archaeology Podcast land. This is Dr. Alan Garfinkel. I'm the president and founder of the California Rock Art Foundation. And what we do is we identify, evaluate manage and conserve rock art both in Alta, California and in Baja, California. We conduct field trips, we have trainings, exercise, we do research, and in every way possible we try to preserve, protect, and coordinate treasures of Alta and Baja, California rock art, of which there are many and diverse. We also work closely with Native Americans and uh, partner with them to recognize and protect sacred sites. So for more info about the fabulous California Rock Art Foundation, you can go to carockart.org. Also, I'm, I'm open to give me a call, 805-312-2261. We would uh, welcome sponsorship or underwriting, uh, helping us to defray the costs of our podcasts. And also membership in California Rock Art Foundation. And of course, donations since we are a 501c3 nonprofit scientific and educational corporation. God bless everyone out there in podcast land. Hello out there in podcast land, the Archaeology Podcast Network. This is uh, Dr. Alan Garfinkel, your host for the Rock Art Podcast. And this is episode 14 in our series. And I'm uh, blessed and honored to uh, have a very illustrious gentleman who I've had the pleasure of working with over the years. His name is Dr. Tirtha Mukhopadhyay. He's a Fulbright Scholar, Professor of Digital Arts at Guanajuato University, Mexico, who in fact uh, specializes and has uh, expertise in the fields of visual anthropology, cognitive anthropology, theology and science, art and science, and many other areas of expertise. Dr. Tirtha, how are you today? I'm very good. Thank you, Alan, for having me. Oh, I'm, I'm honored to have you. And you're beaming your way via the high technology from the uh, illustrious country of Mexico. Is it correct? Yes, from what they call the Del Bajio region or the Sink region. It's a Sink lowland aspect of the Mexican Central Highlands to the south of Mexico and as parts of what is known as Mesoamerica. So the state of Guanajuato is about 300 kilometers from Mexico City. And San Miguel de Allende is part of the state of Guanajuato, an important touristic destination city. And the University of Guanajuato is an old 200-year-old university here. And now it's one of the, it's the sixth largest state university in Mexico. That's very exciting. So the way we usually kick it off, Dr. Tirtha, is to, I guess, sketch the journey that you've taken in your life vis-a-vis uh, -vis your interest in both anthropology, archaeology, and for all of our passionate believers out there in sort of the field of, of art and Native American studies. 
winding our way into the field of rock art. So please kick it off. Well, I started from uh, the University of Calcutta, which is my hometown. And I was born in Kolkata, India. And I studied uh, literature in my undergraduate years. And then I moved on gradually for my master's thesis to study Anglican theology and explore more profoundly aspects of the theological system that was propounded in the Middle Eastern religions. So that happened to be my basic area of interest when I first started out as a scholar in the University of Calcutta. Can you perhaps give us some background as to why you chose the, that rather esoteric topic for uh, your focus? Well, I was always interested in a study of the comparative religions and mainstream literature or literary pursuits uh, never interested me as as much as the theology and religion. And I had some background in the Sanskrit languages and the Indian languages. And I was already on my way towards understanding certain aspects, certain doctrinal aspects of the Eastern religions. And so studying literature in English gave me an opportunity to probe theology of the Anglican Church and the Anglican establishment because Calcutta happened happened to be the the capital of the British Empire till 1911. And that gave me an opportunity, you know, really to look at a lot of literature that had been published on what is now known as Orientalism. So the Anglican religion and just the historicity of India itself served as some of the basis for your your focus, correct? Absolutely. I think I wanted to study the theoretical implications of the intersections between Anglicanism, Trinitarianism, and some of the doctrinal tenets of the Eastern religions, especially Hinduism. Give us a, a, a soundbite, a little, little bit, as to what Anglican is, the Anglican religion, and how that might in fact relate to the um, other, the Middle Eastern religions, of course. The Anglican religion, the Anglican church is the Protestant church, which evolved from the Protestant movement of the Middle Ages. But doctrinally, Anglicanism is not different from the Catholic faith, and they believe in this concept of the, of the Trinity. And what was most important for me at that point of time was to understand via the writings of 19th century British and American theologians that God's uh, ontological status could be defined in terms of action rather than in, rather than in terms of a nominative, which, which is to say that uh, the on, divine ontology had to be understood in terms of action that what we call, quote-unquote, God or Godhead is by definition a verb and not a nominative or a substantive. And that creates very interesting implications for the understanding of reality. I mean, at that stage, I was just trying to probe deep into Anglicanism, Trinitarianism, and divine ontology. What you were saying was that there was a, a Christian expression uh, meeting, interfacing with the Middle Eastern expression as well, and that the Anglican yeah. is, is a much more of a uh, doing or expressive notion of Christianity, correct? Yes, absolutely. I was trying to compare these same doctrinal elements in the Eastern religions, but Nowhere in the gamut of the Eastern religions was there anything close to saying that divinity had to be understood in terms of uh, a pure act as a pure action, as medievalists would say. Okay. And this would create unsubstantiality for any 
theological metaphysical position, which means that this was clearly an existentialist crisis that was looming at the heart of the Western religions, including Anglicanism. So that just gave me a basis for exploring more into other aspects of philosophy and art. Right. Philosophy, art, and religion, I guess, is at the heart of your passion, is it not? Yes, absolutely. I guess I'm, by definition, a student of philosophy yes. rather than anything else. Yes. So you began at the University of Calcutta, correct? Yes, I began at the University of Calcutta, and I got a, got a national fellowship from the University Grants Commission in India. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I started doing my PhD on one of the Anglican authors. And interestingly, this is the poet uh, Samuel Taylor Coleridge. And I was studying Anglican theology in the writings of Samuel Taylor Coleridge. And uh, that, that was that. But uh, unfortunately, I didn't finish I did submit my thesis to the university, mm-hmm. but I didn't, I didn't wait for the results because I was also writing about 19th century Indian Orientalists who had been inspired by the European uh, religious uh, belief systems. Okay. And, they were, and so I was writing a book and I had already sent this book, copies of these, these books to some American professors. Mm -hmm. And so uh, Professor Frederick Turner at the University of Texas at Dallas, who is the son of the anthropologist Victor Turner. Oh, really? Yes. He just happened to pick up that book and became interested in the whole topic of metaphysical ontology, religious ontology. And so he invited me to come and work with him. Fantastic. How exciting. So that book did come out, didn't it? Yes, the, the book did come out, uh, and it's available in some of the libraries in India, and I got some feedback on that book, but not much. I didn't get much exposure for that book, at least outside of India. Now, now what happened next in your journey of academ- academia? Oh, it's very interesting that that second phase of my studies at the University of Texas under Professor uh, supervision, supervision of Professor Frederick Turner, and uh, How did you a few get from other... Calcutta to Texas. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it just happened to be an invitation based on what uh, some of the professors and the committee, the graduate committee at the School of Humanities, uh, found close to what uh, the kind of program they had, and so they invited me to to do another PhD at the University of Texas. Fantastic. So did you get your PhD from Texas? Yes, then I started, I came to Texas <laughs> and I started uh, another one. my doctoral studies in a completely different area because this brought me face to face with the stark differences in the academic uh, world of uh, between the academic world of India and the academic world of the United States of America from a very uh, rigid, entrenched, orthodox doctrinal system, I shifted to uh, more empirical and scientific studies. And in Texas, I started studying cognitive aesthetics under Professor Victor Turner And that really paved uh, the way for me to enter into the fields of anthropology Anthropology and and then graduate. And rock art. (laughs) (laughs) Very, very heady stuff, uh, Professor. Let me tell you, this is what, the uh, 14th episode? And I've never had someone so erudite and uh, academic uh, as as you, it's it's really a quite an interesting blessing. So, your interest again is so fascinating in terms of just its its development and the interface between so many different disciplines that you're trying to integrate. Isn't that right? Absolutely, because uh, 
there was already this experience in conventional doctrinal philosophy, but I was moving on to more empirical studies of the arts and rituals and uh, systems of expression and belief. And I found myself reading Darwin's On the Origin of Expression in Man and Animal, uh, Eugene D. Achilles' pathbreaking work. The, the title of the book is A Biogenetic Structural Analysis of Ritual. And uh, say the it, studies of say ritual... It, say it fast six times. <laughs> So in other words, we're trying to probe the origins of religion. We're trying to understand the neurotheology and the cognitive neuroscience of, of how people begin to embrace religion and how they, yes. and how they, uh, they express the ritual, that, behavior. Right, the ritual behavior and the artistic realm of how that is manifested in their material culture, correct? Yes, absolutely. How ritual behavior gives birth to things like the totem or or the mask or even what occupied most of my time after my research in the University of Texas, rock art, which is supposedly not art at all. Art is a very significant misnomer for rock art because it's an aspect of ritual behavior where humans who uh, live in collectives, who live like in tribes and groups would perform these visual expressive actions on the surface of rocks to commemorate or to memorialize some of their feelings about how things transpire in the world. I think that's a great place to sort of segue on this first segment. And I guess in the next segment, we'll move from the University of Texas to the next chapter of your life. How's that? That sounds great. <laughs> great. So let's take, let's take a break and I'll see you on the other side. Chris Webster here for the Archaeology Podcast Network. We strive for high quality interviews and content so you can find information on any topic in archaeology from around the world. One way we do that is by recording interviews with our hosts and guests located in many parts of the world all at once. We do that through the use of Zencaster. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R. Zencaster allows us to record high quality audio with no stress on the guest. Just send them a link to click on and that's it. Zencaster does the rest. They even do automatic transcriptions. Check out the link in the show notes for 30% off your first three months or go to zencastr.com and use the code rockart pulling up to mickey d's just for drinks oh yeah that's me nothing extra just perfection and a straw coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block because there are drinks then there are drinks from mcdonald's Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Well, welcome back to the Rock Art Podcast. This is your host, Dr. Alan Garfinkel, founder and president of the California Rock Art Foundation. And we are absolutely honored to have uh, Dr. Chertha Mukahabadai, Fulbright Scholar, and professor of the digital arts department in Guadalajara University, beaming over from Mexico. And in the first segment, we began to uh, trace Dr. Chertha's uh, history and evolution and beginnings of his academic career. And now I want to jump back because uh, really the theme of our discussion is uh, a deep dive into the relationship between science and religion an understanding of ritual and art, and really a comparative study of the uh, nature of the human mind 
and uh, the expression of belief and ritual. How am I doing, Tertha? Absolutely. So let's pick up the story. You're in Texas. I, might, I think you may have completed a dissertation. I don't know, but we're getting close. Or have we uh, completed that dissertation? Yes, I finished my doctoral dissertation and I submitted my thesis to the committee and got it approved. And I got my PhD from the University of Texas in a record two years and nine months. I got a, a, a stipend of $2,000 for finishing it uh, so rapidly. And that $2,000 I used to buy my tickets back home to India. So that was 2005. <laughs> so you're, uh, now you're back in India, are you? Yeah. yeah, I'm back in India and I didn't have a proper job, but then the University of Calcutta uh, accepted me and I was tenured as a full-time uh, instructor and I kept teaching at the University of Calcutta for several several years. While my friends from the University of Texas, they invited me to come back to Mexico. They were they were from Mexico, and they they had come back to Mexico. So they asked me to come to Mexico and to continue my studies because I was already interested in rock art and I was beginning to study rock art, uh, exploring rock art sites in India, in central India. And uh, these rock art sites were a confirmation of my theoretical position in my doctoral dissertation in Texas, which was uh, to me quite interesting and innovative because I hadn't seen anything like that said before. And I, of course, I had the freedom to say whatever I found to be true following my research at that stage. How did your research in India and those rock art sites manifest some of the discoveries and connections you were making? Yes. One of the most important findings that I vocalized in my doctoral dissertation in Texas was the idea of emotional cognition, because generally cognition is emotion neutral activity, is considered in the literature as an act of understanding in terms of human reflexes to the environment and to stimuli from outside. But what I tended to believe about any act of perception per se is that any act of interpretation of elements in the outside world or of stimuli generated uh, in human interactions is by definition emotional in nature. And that if you extended that uh, idea, it would amount to saying that emotions themselves can provide us with a tool to interpret the world. So co cognition cannot be an emotion-independent activity. So on the basis of, of that theory, what I proposed was that in ritual behavior is essentially, ritual behavior is also essentially uh, emotive in nature and that ritual behavior manifests some of the deepest emotional expressions. It's a catharsis of the emotional traumas, our, our emotional beliefs in the supernatural. And this provided me with the foundation for my further research on rock art. So tell me a bit about the Indian site and what was there, what was represented, and how would your discovery relate? Well, what attracted me most about rock art in India, and the, these were probably late Mesolithic uh, expressions, the Negroid uh, group that lives in the entire span from central and west of India and extends to Southeast Asia. Uh, this was a migration which hypothetically took place again in the Ice Age era of migrations through bridges across oceans and uh, out of Africa again. 
and in the expressions of these people. And it is interesting that some of these tribes from Central India and Northeast India still continue to have their rituals. And there is a very deep connection which has not yet been cut off in the stream of history. So their expressions. What I found interesting, again, my attention always uh, seemed to be riveted on the anthropomorphic representations. And uh, I also felt that anthropomorphic representations in rock art constitute the first body of evidence for religious symbolism and the representation of divinities in human cultures. So the anthropomorphic representations, it's like uh, like an empirical version of God's uh, dictum to Adam that he made man in his image. Yes. So that was what fascinated me. Right. So so what, if, we, if we were going to talk about this sort of in... In, in other terms, that we're talking about these beings that are depicted on, on rocks. Sometimes they're called anthropomorphs. Right. Now, they sometimes are, are, are mixtures or conflations of animals and humans, so I call them animal-humans, or we have anthropomorphs or zoomorphs. The working hypotheses for many researchers are these are shamanistic ancestor deities. I'm just putting those words together in a combination because there's various understandings of what those particular beings mean, and those all interfinger and intermix and collaborate in this in this compound metaphor of these powerful images. I hope that clarifies things a bit. Yes, absolutely. Uh, what, what you're pointing out, Alan, is towards the literature of the interpretation of these anthropomorphic representations on rock art sur surfaces inside caves, prehistoric caves and panels, rock canvases. What do the East Indians themselves do? What actions do they have? What rituals? What do they believe about these images, as you had alluded to, in terms of the contemporary associations that are you know, ethnographically described or currently practiced? Well, there are some uh, some tribal groups uh, which are still not connected to mainstream human culture in some of the islands in the Bay of Bengal. But I have not been there. My, my field studies were mainly centered around the plateau area of eastern India. Yes. And what the religion, the religious expressions of these people are now very difficult to uh, you know, to isolate. You cannot isolate their religious practices from the more later religions that were possibly a result of migrations from Central Asia, which is now known as Hinduism uh, or Buddhism. And so Hindu rituals, polytheistic worship, and uh, manifestations of behavior that are kind of offerings. Right. So it's a, it's much more of a layer, layered approach or syncretic where you have yeah. multiple layers of different religions integrating and compounding and sort of twisting around yeah. that provide some basis. But I bet that there's still yeah. some, some activities or manifestations that are going on that harken back to perhaps antiquity. Yes, absolutely. Syncrasis is the right word. It's a syncretic religion now, and they would take offerings, they would take incense, they would take uh, kind of pigments, washable pigments, and they would go to these rock panels in trails from the villages and would go there and offer their uh, incense and whatever they have to, the, to these gods who manifested on the rock art on the rock surfaces right there. Fantastic. So it's a syncretic form of religion. Yeah. Yes. And that, that certainly is is uh, an expression that we rarely see in the Americas today. And so to see something like that still taking place to this very day is, is ra rather special. Yes, it's very interesting. It's very colorful. But it was not a ritual 
per se, which captured my imagination in, in my further studies. Because what, what I faced in the context of my studies in America was the very strong empirical and scientific basis to speculations on ritual behavior. And I had to conf confront empiricism. I had to confront positivisms and science with more profound expressions of the human intellect, which is perhaps normative in the religious experiences. So I, I think what you're telling me is you had to move uh -huh. from the literature and from the sort of independent philosophical frame to a much more empirical, scientific, hypothetical, deductive way of thinking and testing some of your discoveries to evaluate their uh, validity. How's that? Absolutely. That is how, I, I, that's the tra trajectory of my research in the later years. Please. I was trying to quantify those experiences from neuroethological, neuro cognitive perspectives. Right. Yeah. So one way in which you can think of it is like uh, by looking at the anthropomorph again, because I was trying to isolate the features of the anthropomorph, and I was trying to see, I was trying to analyze why the dimensionality of an anthropomorph, anthropomorph, the 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 structure and the measurements and the interrelationships between the structures between the uh, structural configurations of the anthropomorph would differ from anth uh, uh, actual anthropometric measurements. Yes. Which is to say, which is to say it is, it is a kind of standard practice for the rock art people, for the prehistoric people. And if, if we could take the entire spectrum of rock art in the world and subjected it to a statistical analysis of the patterns uh, on the basis of the pattern recognition. And if we were to measure the curvature and the length of arms or the torso or the human head and their equivalence in rock art with actual anthropometric proportions, then I believe if we could do that, it's kind of, it's a kind of hypothetical dream project for me. Right. If we could do that, we, we might be able to show that the visual representation is actually undergoing a process of transformation, which is not arbitrary, but which has a very definite and uh, trajectory, which has a very definite uh, teleology and end. And uh, it's it's taking us to another dimension of representation. It's another level another of understanding. Dimension. Yeah. Yes. Well, let's let's stop there. And I think in this, this final segment, I'd like to, I think, deep dive and delve into an actual case study in the research that you're involved with in the study of rock art and how your theoretical perspective and the empirical analysis and how those get together. That'll be exciting. See you on the flip-flop. Thank you. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba -da -ba -ba -ba. Well, welcome back. This is uh, segment three of your Rock Art podcast. This is uh, Dr. Alan Garfinkel, and I'm uh, your host for the Rock Art podcast. Welcome back, Tertha. Would uh, love to get into some of the details at this point 
Tirtha is a professor, doctor in Guanajuato University in Mexico. And we're talking about the relationship between uh, rock art, religion, belief, ritual, science, and art, and also sort of delving into the cognitive neuroscience, the neurophysiology, or sometimes it's called neurotheology, uh, with respect to the study of, of uh, prehistory. Yes. So, Tirtha, kick, kick us off with uh, your perspective on those uh, giant questions. Yes, I guess I could focus more on the actual work that I have been doing in the last six years. Of course, I have been doing it with you. And my Fulbright research project in 2013 was on rock art in the American Southwest. But that was uh, until uh, I knew that the American Southwest was not just a very, very small geographical chapter in the rock art studies. But thanks to uh, you and thanks to some of the other archaeologists and anthropologists I have been working with at the uh, University of Santa California at Santa Cruz, I started working on the anthropomorphs, the human-shaped prehistoric rock art inscriptions in California, and of course, Coso. And I drove up to all those rock art sites, which were easily accessible from the highway. And I went up to Colorado, and I tried to trace the evolution of anthropomorphic figures in what is now known as the Uto-Aztecan spectrum, the Uto-Aztecan cultures. So we've got quite a, quite a project collaboratively. So I guess the piece of information for those people in, in the Rock Art podcast land is that COSO is actually a very definable, geographically narrow place. It's only 100 square miles, and it has some of the greatest uh, density and concentration of rock art in the entire Western Hemisphere. And it is dominated by a, an ancient and remarkable panoply, ubiquity, of uh, both solid-bodied and uh, decorated-bodied uh, anthropomorphic figures. So we certainly have the ability to begin to analyze or consider those figures. And uh, as well, it, it, it has a connection, of course, with uh, Mesoamerica, because we're looking at uh, ancient Uto-Aztecan people, archaic Uto-Aztecan people that distantly could in fact be related to some of the expressions in the, the larger Great Basin, the American Southwest, and even into the high cultures of Mesoamerica. So I guess we should chat about that for a moment. Yes, Go absolutely, ahead, Alan. At first, the rock art of the Kosos provided me with one of the best, most classic examples of uh, prehistoric religious art, religious inscription and representations. The techniques of Koso rock art are a kind of, they are classic examples of uh, prehistoric rock art because uh, in Koso in you begin to see uh, very concrete nuanced metaphorical representations of divinities. I mean, there is no way of telling whether they are divinities. At least they are ritual expressions. And at first, what interested me more was to understand how divinization processes actually emerge in human societies. What we're talking about here is how indigenous people, literally thousands of years ago, when the Koso rock art began, visibly expressed the concept of shamanistic ancestor deities, supramundane beings right. on the rocks. What, how did they attribute? Yes. How did, what were their characteristics? What were their forms? And how do those relate back to their rituals and their uh, sense of, of cognition 
And for you, most importantly, how might those uh, cognitive uh, elements affect one's emotions and feelings and sensibilities when viewing those images? Please. These uh, these representations were very advanced, and it would not be incorrect here to say that Koso Rock Art displays one of the most advanced human emotional systems in the uh, uh, visual systems that have so far evolved, even in technological systems. This is because the anthropomorphs in Koso can essentialize what I would like to call miniaturize. So in Koso, we see miniaturized versions of the human emotions. And by miniaturization, I mean focalization, I mean concentration, uh, the uh, attribution of superior, more quote-unquote ergotropic responses. Now, this uh, ergotropism in, in cognitive sciences is a word that is used to denote the mechanisms and the functional status of the nervous system that favor an, an organism's capacity to spend energy. So how do we spend energy? Any ritual act, action, any act of euphoria or pleasure that is derived from looking at the arts is an essentially ergotropic response to a stimulus in the environment. And so primarily these anthropomorphs definitely attract and arrest our gaze, our attention. Yes. yes. And and many people have at least begun to recognize that these figures, they call it static full front facing figures, uh, numinous figures, cause one to be startled and attracted and awed by their beauty and their, their presence. They're, they're very focused. And as you have said uh, and taught me, the concentric circle faces have something to tell us, don't they? Absolutely. The, co the concentric circle is not important per se, unless we take into account the center of that circle. And there has been plenty of uh, research in the cog cognition of children and the way uh, children get gradually learn to fix their attention on objects. And in any communicative strategy in young children, in the development of young children, uh, a focal point or a center is always a kind of anchor and it indicates uh, the way a child's psychological mechanism is developing. The psychological structure is evolving in the lifespan uh, of the child, of the, of the human being. And so the concentric circle metaphor in, in the Koso rock art, because in, in the Koso deities, you see these heads, which are not really like a human head. They don't have physical verisimilitude or resemblance. They don't have two eyes and, and a nose and a, a, a mouth or eyebrows or hair, but they have equivalent symbols like a concentric circle and just one dot in the center. And this center attracts us and it tells us that you are looking at something, that your energies are being spent, being burnt at this moment to look at someone who is also looking at you probably. It's like an antithetical reflex. This is the way in which rock art of the Kosos can uh, or have the ability to attract the attention of the viewer in a way that other rock art systems really do not. And in a sense, Koso rock art is a very advanced form of representation. And that is the beauty of Koso rock art. Now, if we jump yeah. to Mexico 
And we think about right. the Huichol. One thing that you told me, of course, another Uto Aztecan historic culture, which is deeply religious and has a, a very robust expression of their religiosity and belief system, hearkening back to the early earlier days of the development of ancient Uto Aztecan. There's a parallel. There's an ethnographic parallel. What might that be? Absolutely. I mean, if you look at those dream catchers, uh, right. which you have. Yeah, hanging in front of your uh, your patio or uh, or those ritual uh, banners, the eye of God, as the rituals call it, which is just like a diamond quadrangular shape with a, with a central circle or dot, which represents the eye of God. For the the eye of the God. Diamond. Yes. And so uh, you and I, I must uh, confess, we together we came to the conclusion that the Koso concentric head represents the, uh, an equivalent of the ritual eye of God motif in ritual textile art. And there must have been a connection there in the history of those evolving uh, Aztecan cultures. What the ritual say is that when they peer into this this uh, Narika, which is called the sort of the, the uh, eye of God, they can Correct. see or see, they can peer and see God or God can see them. It's a, it's a two-way mirror of sorts, isn't it? Absolutely. It, There's something, something going on there. Communication. Go ahead. A, a communication on a, a more elevated energy level, uh, which is conditioned in the human system. But, uh, what became interesting in the later research on the correlations that exist between Koso concentric circles and the ritual eye of God motif in ritual folk art is that, that there must have been these uh, prehistoric connections between the ancient peoples which have not been explored till date. And what happened really is that I came to believe more and more in the fact that the Koso people who depicted these concentric circles must have been genetically or linguistically connected to the Mesoamerican cultures. Because even in, if you remember Fowler's 1983 thesis of the geographical extent or the territory of the Uto-Aztecan peoples, the Koso or the Western Mojave aspect of the Aztecan cultures were the only non-maize growing cultures. In other words, what we see in Koso, in Koso rock art is uh, the example of a forager, hunter-gatherer Aztecan group. The very ancient, ancient hearth of, you know, sort of proto Udo Aztecan cosmology, in part. If Absolutely. We had a, as, a wor as a working hypothesis. Well, in the, in, the, in the last few minutes we have of this, this final segment, I guess the other thing that, that we came to understand or begin to sort of appreciate is this series of what we call indexical animals, didn't we? We were talking about sort of that connection as well. Yes, the indexical animals were were part of the ritual repertoire of the uh, prehistoric peoples, and they were hunters, and they would pray to some supernatural agency to feel more confident about provision, about uh, the supply of food, maintenance of the and supply of the food chain. So the, 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 they would pray for animals. They would pray to the Mother Earth and uh, Mother Earth, who would provide them with all sorts of provisions, became really the predominant deity in the Aztec and cultures. And there it goes. And this is what exactly I was looking towards uh, for, I, and I, I am looking towards for my future research is to consider in depth the notion of the Mother Earth, what the Aztecans called the Tonantzin. And Tonantzin, which after, yes, yes, please. Yes, and Tonantzin, Tonantzin was con conflated in later Aztecan imagination with 
the uh, Virgin Mother of Guadalupe. And so you have this very interesting syncresis in Mesoamerica. Fantastic. Well, we've run out of time, and I'm sure we could talk for another hour or more, but we've we've had quite an odyssey from, from uh, Calcutta to Texas, back to uh, Guanajuato, and throughout uh, trying to understand and do a very deep dive into the ancient mysteries of the origins of religion. And Tirtha, it's been a, a wonderful, wonderful conversation that we've had and an interesting odyssey. I hope you enjoyed it. <laughs> I enjoy talking to you, Alan. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I'll see uh, all, of, all of you again on our next uh, Rock Art Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening to the Rock Art Podcast with Dr. Alan Garfinkel and Chris Webster. You can find this podcast on the educational podcast app Lyceum, L-Y-C-E-U-M, and wherever you find podcasts. Find show notes and contact information at www.arcpodnet.com forward slash rock art. Thanks for listening, and thanks for sharing this podcast with your family and friends. This show is produced and recorded by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks... Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. From.